This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Lockbox, a podcast providing real estate professionals with action items for success. My name is Jeffrey Broger, and I'm going to be your host. I'm the founder of two real estate marketing and tech companies, Steezy.Digital and RealNurture.io. In this podcast, you'll learn from top 1% real estate and mortgage brokers the exact secrets to their success. Welcome to Lockbox. Welcome to Lockbox. My name is Jeffrey Broger, and I am here today with Jen Cameron. Jen, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So why don't you first tell our listeners who you are and where you're from? I'm Jen Cameron. I'm from the greater Seattle area. I've been a licensed broker since 1999 with a focus on luxury. So um, right now, currently licensed with Coldwell Banker Bain. We have 34 offices throughout Washington and Oregon. And I also run the luxury division for our company. Amazing. Well, we have a lot to cover. You have a lot of experience in the real estate space, and I'm excited to dive into that. But before we do, what was your first exposure in 1999 to real estate or before 1999? But what was that first exposure like? Wow, this is a cool industry. This is maybe something I could do. Well, it's funny that you asked that because my first exposure to real estate was being in the back of my dad's car, sitting on top of his Thomas Guides and waiting hour upon hour for him to get out of a listing appointment because I grew up oh, wow. with everyone in my family was kind of connected to real estate. So um, either real estate sales, brokerage or builders, land developers. I'm currently married to a land guy now in the industry, but that was my first. But fast forward later in life, I tried mortgage loans, realized that wasn't for me was a title rep in my early 20s. So I had a background working in title, but I got into real estate in 1999 after my daughter Jordan was diagnosed with autism. Mm -hmm. And I realized I was quickly going to be a single mom raising two little toddlers on my own and I wanted and needed to work. And so I looked at different opportunities where I would have the flexibility to hopefully be there in the morning when they got up, take them to school, put them to bed at night, not have to miss all of their fun things they had going on in life and have a really great income to be able to be the main provider in my house. Right. Yeah. That's a powerful why to, to get into real estate. And of course, that previous exposure as a, a child sitting on those Thomas guides, it, it definitely seasoned you to probably be a little biased towards real estate. But e either way, it's a phenomenal choice as well. I mean, 23 years later, here we are. And you know, you're working with Colwell, luxury specialist in Seattle. And obviously, it worked out. Yeah, it's pretty funny, because I think that initially, that experience I had with a kid is waiting and, you know, maybe people being very busy and, and then thinking, you know, I probably won't do that as a career. I'll probably be a teacher, an actress, a lawyer, and then somehow found myself doing this. And it kind of is all those things in one. Right. <laughs> That's funny. A teacher, actress, lawyer. 
<laughs> yeah, you definitely wear a lot of hats as a real estate professional. And uh, hopefully you can get to the point where you start outsourcing some of those and focusing on what you do best. So that's a great segue into kind of where you're at today. I would love to know if you're open to share it, just the transaction volume of yourself and or your team. Uh, and then that helps give context to my listeners as well as to me for the, the next follow-up questions. Okay. So I've had a really interesting career trajectory. So for the first 11 years of my career, I sold real estate and loved it. Was very passionate about what I was doing for a living. When I, my daughter got to about middle school age, we moved to New York city. So she could attend a school called the Rebecca school. It was a school for autism. I did not know anybody in New York City at that time. I was not well networked, didn't have connections. So going to more of the management executive side of the business allowed me to make such a significant move where there was opportunities where I would have time to build a network and you know all those things that you need when you go into the sales side of the business. So I was involved in launching a new company in New York and then recruited over um, to another company shortly thereafter, where I had the opportunity to, you know, make a a growth movement in executive part of real estate. Where I and I stayed there um, in that side of the business management, you know, side of real estate for the next ten years of my career. And then a couple of years ago, um, I took the leap and said, you know, I want to go back to selling full time. That's where my heart is and my passion. I'm back in Seattle and this is where everybody I know is. And, mm-hmm. and I really wanted to, to do that. So I stepped down to move to that side of the business and had a great opportunity to continue to run the luxury side of our company um, and go back to selling full time. And that was December, um, right before the pandemic broke out. So I didn't plan that in my business plan going back to selling and was needed very much through that first year of helping other brokers and people kind of keep their business going. So that first year was a slow start. Yes, this last year was my second year back to selling full time. I did about 40 million um, and continue to grow from there. And um, just now and for the first time in my 23 years and starting to expand a team. So I brought on a partner recently. We have a second person coming who I'm pretty excited about and we'll kind of just keep going. That's awesome. And it seems like you have such a strong foundation now going into being the agent of your own in Seattle and also beginning to recruit and build the team. I mean, you have such a history in the industry and being successful and seeing successful teams and helping grow successful teams. And now you're stepping into that role, which is really exciting to have that experience. And I'm sure it gives you a a different level of confidence moving into and making, you know, moving the chess pieces in the right order and the right sequence to continue leveling up. So that's that's a really exciting place to be for you. Yeah, it's a fun time. It's exciting. I think um, having different roles in the business has given me such a broader perspective, maybe on um, where the industry is going, kind of how I want to set things up now. You know, I'm, I'm now I just hit my 50s. And so, you know, I have limited time in my career that I really want to have 
um, a strong growth trajectory, and then also set up for later in life too, as I kind of transition, you know, to winding down one day, but keep my business going. Yep. Makes sense. I love that. So what would you say is the best advice to someone who's a a high producer out there individually. And I would consider that someone doing like 20 million personally and above, and they really want to get to 30 or 40 million, you know, like what, what levers could they pull? And maybe more importantly, what advice should they ignore to uh, get to that next level? Mm -hmm. So getting into the next level. And really one of the things that I just had a conversation about recently was you cannot be all things to all people all the time. You know, if you want to, you know, really focus on the luxury market, you better know your stuff, right? So you've got to be knowledgeable. You need to be able to be well-networked. You need to have a focus and stay focused. That means sometimes maybe you're not going to take opportunities that don't serve your purpose, right? So you might give a referral out of your area to somebody else. You might, you know, expand your team to take on other things for you, but you cannot be all things to all people all the time. So that also kind of serves you well when you're thinking about how are you marketing and branding yourself to really define, you know, what your brand is. And you can speak to this probably even more so, but but making sure that, you know, the persona that you're projecting is in line with your goals. Something else that has been big in just my trajectory is looking at when to say no. And if I'm doing something because it maybe serves my ego versus my goal. And if it's not in line with my goal, whether or not it serves my ego, it's probably going to not make its way into my business plan. That might be doing a ad or something that maybe, or something that's not exactly in line with my goals. That happened recently where I did an ad because I had a great opportunity. I was invited into it and really it wasn't going to serve my purpose. And it probably fed my ego a little more because it was one of those power player edition things, you know, and it was like, okay, well, I didn't really need to do that. That, you know, was expensive and it wasn't in line with everything that I said I was going to do. Does that make sense? It does. And breaking that down to a simple question, is this next move I'm considering going to feed my ego or feed my purpose? Yeah, that's a powerful lesson. It is. It's a very powerful lesson. I appreciate you sharing that. And you can only learn things like that through experience. You know, and sometimes we haven't fully learned our own lesson. And so we Uh need to get smacked upside the head to kind of be reminded, like, what is my purpose, you know? And for me, being of service and being able to give back more to my family and the charities and things that my husband are involved in, that's my purpose. That's my goal. So making more money isn't just about a bigger house, but there's these people that we care for in our family that, you know, if I can provide a family vacation and we all go to Hawaii and rent a house, but I have my sister and her kids and my kids and all their girlfriends and spouses, you know, together, that's my happy place. And I've got them all locked down with me that that's in line with my goals. So um, supporting the various, you know, different 
Augie's quest or autism or things that we do, being able to give back more to them. And I just had that same feeling this week with what's happening in Ukraine, where I was a bit paralyzed in my plans for the week and having a hard time getting going. And I said, you know, the one action I can take this week that's going to be helpful is to go out and service my clients and make more money. And then I can give more to those causes, right? Absolutely. No, that really does come back to purpose and why you're doing everything that you are doing. And as you mentioned, that is a significant part of branding. That's what separates having a brand from just having a logo. A brand should have its own look and feel, its own personality, its own, essentially its own social security number, because it's a, it's a thing. It's an entity that lives beyond you. And past that, it should be so clear to your audience that others can explain what the purpose is, not just you. Of course, you know it, but have you taken what's in your head out, put it into paper and then shared it with the world to the point where other people can communicate your brand's purpose and promise back to you? That's the real test. And yes, it's super important to then be in line with it and be niche focused because what happens is now you have that network like you were talking about, the luxury area, you need the network, you need certain things that help you to service those clients to a higher degree and you can't be everything to everybody. You shouldn't be, right? So I, I really appreciate that feedback and that's a, an excellent point. One aspect that I would like to focus on at this point is some of your entrepreneurial habits. So I'm curious, what is the single most important habit or action that you take on a daily basis, which has attributed most to your success? You know, I think that there's always these times when maybe, you know, especially if you've just come off of a really busy period and then your business kind of slows down, is reminding yourself that it's really important to remain of service, to make sure that you're constantly reaching out to people. It doesn't always have to be about business, but every single day, who can I help today? Because opportunity will come when you least expect it or because of all those things that you do that maybe aren't quite as fun. I think everybody loves to do their social media and cool videos and, you know, come up with a creative post, you know, that feeds your kind of create creative side of your business. But truly when you're helping other people with no expectation in return, or you're touching on someone, you're also finding like something happened to somebody recently I didn't know about, but because I called them, they shared it with me. It wasn't something they were going to post on social media, but that's just strengthening our relationship and the relationships that I have with my clients, my sphere, the people I'm in touch with are very authentic. I might be able to help somebody with their business today, six months down the road, they might think of referring me a client that wasn't just the point but it's just that high touch every day. Who can I help? Who can I be in touch with? It's a little bit old school, but that will serve the longevity of your real estate business better than anything that I know of today. Another great point. And on the note of referrals and the sphere that helps to feed you on a daily basis, I'm curious your percentage of that type of business as opposed to new business that comes from advertising, online lead generation, um, door knocking, cold calling, like all the other tactics to generate a brand new client from, from cold marketing. What, do you have a percentage breakdown of, of about what your business volume comes from? And then I have a follow-up question. 
Um, a lot of my business comes from referrals from other brokers outside of my area. Okay. So I have, you know, my past clients, my family, my husband happens to be a great referral source for me because we're both in different sides of the business. He yeah. owns a company um, called Land Advisors Organization. They only represent land sales. So he won't do any residential. But He's good for three or four transactions a year. Always. I mean, I should <laughs> say thank you, Scott Cameron. But, um, right. but also because we kind of run in a lot of the same circles together. We're involved. Um, we have a lot of our family, you know, his son's joining his business and his girlfriend's getting her license to join my team. So there's kind of a family affair involved. But That's awesome. those relationships that I have are across the globe. So I've worked for a lot of global companies. And then having worked on the East Coast and the West Coast in New York, those connections I nurture and keep up with. And we all have fun. We kind of, you know, run in the same circles and tribe together. Um, and so you develop real friendships if you authentically incorporate that as part of your business and try to be well networked. So that is a huge part of my business. Obviously, repeat clients, social media, that becomes huge in my business. Less so I'm not really connecting with buyers and sellers as much on social media, but I have a lot of my transactions that either sell because I posted on social media and it's found there before it's found on the MLS or because other brokers were constantly chattering together. Mm. Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. And I'm now curious, my follow-up question is, you know, you seem to be having a lot of your business come from sphere referrals. And I'm curious, in addition to, you know, the, the offline chatter and, and the tribes and things like that, what systems do you have in place to increase the amount of referrals you receive? Yeah, are there any types of creative systems as opposed to having just having the relationship? How do you nurture the relationship to incentivize more referrals? So I have my email marketing and okay. I try not to, you know, send too many things, spam. I make sure if I'm sending something, it's either a value for them, an opportunity, or, you know, every once in a while, there might be something that I feel is a little more heartfelt, but I try not to overdo my email because most of those people in my email are truly on my social media too. And so I do do some digital advertising, Google ads, LinkedIn, with my social network, it just continues to grow, but I'm having conversations kind of offline, not just on my feed, those types of things. Those have been the biggest generators for me. I don't buy any online leads or participate in any certain referral programs or groups. Mm -hmm. um, most of it for me, just having you know the opportunity over so many years to grow a vast network, that works for me. As far as systems and processes, I think that is critical. You know, I have a CRM. I, for many years, didn't need to really focus on it. But now, you know, it used to be 20 years ago, you would really focus on a specific area. People would always say, okay, what's your niche and what neighborhood do you focus on? And then things went online. And now our clients are kind of telling us where they want to go, right? And a lot of times it can be Seattle or the East Side or, you know, I have a lot of second home market clients who are either looking in the San Juan Islands, you know, or 
any of the islands here, ski resorts, those kinds of things. And they want me to be with them, representing them in those transactions as well. So now making sure that I am keeping track of everybody because I am kind of spread out more vastly, that is important. So um, that's probably my biggest piece of advice to anyone starting in real estate, getting into business is to develop a strong CRM systems and processes from the beginning. I learned that lesson in my career when the market crashed and I didn't use a CRM and I really needed to stay in touch with people. And then the market was so bad for so many years that I kind of got out of touch with people because the opportunity wasn't there. So as the market picked up, I had to go back and try to scramble to remember, you know, where are all my clients and their contact information. So that was a good lesson to learn then. So I don't know if that answered your question as directly. Yeah, you've mentioned email, but only sending value opportunities or something that's heartfelt and that being a system that you use to keep in touch. So that definitely answered the question. And I think the other side of that was database organization, really just spending the time and getting the help to clean up your database and just know who your people are that buy and refer and who hasn't done it yet, but might, and then who, you know, maybe they uh, have been cold for a long time and you can put them into kind of a different bucket. So I think having those segments is really important and uh, you, you definitely covered that. So uh, where I'd like to go next is where do you think the industry is heading? You know, what are your five, 10 year projections? If you had a crystal ball and you could tell us everything by uh, 2032, uh, what do you think the real estate transaction is going to look like and that's, how are you setting yourself up for success? Okay. So that's, that's such a loaded question because I do wish that I had a crystal ball. <laughs> I wish I would have had one for 20 years, but you know, that I'm fiercely protective of my industry. And, you know, even when I was managing, I'm a real estate broker at heart. That's, that's who I am where the industry is kind of heading I think everybody, the elephant in the room is everybody wants to commoditize real estate. Mm. That that seems to be everybody's goal. Everybody's always starting a new company or, you know, the next thing. And, you know, every time something new comes up, everybody kind of catches their breath. And is this, you know, the end of the real estate broker? <laughs> um, uh, no, it's not. But I do think where we will see that happen is in the markets where, People don't have a lot of capital and it's so difficult with prices getting so expensive for any buyer to really save that 20% down. You know, my first house was 190,000. My sister's first, second house, actually I just sold her was, you know, 1.1 million. I had such a hard time with, you know, my baby sister, you know, having to spend over a million dollars for a home. Now, if she was in the market a year later, she'd have to spend, you know, probably 1.6 for that home. So these buyers really do need to try to save that 20%. That's very difficult. So when we get to that area of just where, you know, commoditizing may become more transactional, I think it's where people have less money and they're doing anything and everything they can to try to save finances or make that second move. But what am I doing in that? How am I setting myself up? Part of it is continuing to focus on the luxury market. My clients that 
are in the luxury market truly look at me as that trusted advisor the same way they do you know their attorneys and their wealth managers and their business manager um and they understand you know the significant errors mistakes costs time is money their time is probably spent better focused on other important priorities letting me do you know their extensive feasibility studies and solving problems and things and oftentimes i'm working with those teams for my clients in there and speaking of team you know that's part of me growing my team is being able to make sure that all the details promises that i make commitments etc that nothing is getting dropped in there and that we're staying high service high level high touch with our clients mm. yes which is always important always important that makes sense especially leaning towards luxury as a a um safe area because if real estate is going to get commoditized it'll be on the everyday median house price transaction right uh it's very difficult to commoditize something luxury especially because the luxury seller typically they have a person as a financial advisor they have a broker that they've worked with multiple times because they're willing to pay a fee to have it done right and to have it done for them and instead of you know wanting it faster cheaper you know this and that which is more of the median consumer so i i do tend to agree with you there yeah definitely a way to insulate yourself from those changes and and increases in technology is to specialize and really just specialize on something that you're great at and if you specialize in luxury that's even better so i i like that answer so you know moving on to uh how like having listings and then using those to generate more leads you mentioned that you're doing some ads and primarily it doesn't seem like they're lead generation ads it seems like you said linkedin and google and it's helping to build your followings which then your organic content is engaging is that right am i understanding correctly yeah that is correct definitely okay. i think more of the ads that i do are less about lead gen than almost brand development for me um the ones that tend to bring lead generation are when i'm actually posting you know or sharing something in an ad that has to do with a specific listing and this is and my exact again, question yeah, yeah and and it ends up you know some of those i've i've had that experience you know i have a lot of people over the last year have found me online but it hasn't been just one place it could have been realtor.com or somebody mentioned me on facebook or somebody saw a need because somebody was moving from out of the area that knew about me i mean so so it's even though they find me online or they get to my website or whatever it's been it hasn't just been one thing so i do understand the need for seo i do understand the need for having a strong online presence and making sure that if somebody finds you online that you know you are up to date you look like you that you can clearly identify what the value is that you bring and that there's something about when they find you online that connects them to you yep that makes total sense and my question which is is like right in line with what you said is how do you leverage digital marketing to gain exposure for your listings and generate new leads So you mentioned that was like your your best your best lead magnet online is a listing, right? So yeah. how, how are you doing that? 
you know, there's so many different programs right now. We have something called social ad engine that just makes it easy where if I have a new listing, you know, I can go in, it populates, I can set it up. I can, you know, I had something recently at the Pan Pacific Hotel in Seattle. There's a residential condominium building and the condo market was not awesome. After the pandemic, it has started to take off again, but I really needed to market and promote this listing for my client. And so we started saying, okay, you know, who are who are the buyers that would be moving into the downtown condo market? And it was really quickly apparent that we needed to hit our feeder markets. And so I was able to take that listing and send it out to, you know, San Francisco, San Jose, Austin, Texas, wherever, you know, the people that were relocating here for specific downtown businesses. And I had a lot of lead inquiries and people that saw those ads that weren't necessarily looking for that exact property, but that were actually moving here within the next year, reach out to me. And so now I'm working with one of those people. That's smart going into the feeder markets. And so when you're, you say like targeting feeder markets, is that with like Facebook ads Are you doing like Google, YouTube ads? Like what's the vehicle? You know, a lot of times just being on um, Instagram and Facebook with targeted social ads, we're a little bit limited on who we can exactly target because of fair housing on social ads now that Mm -hmm. changed a few years ago. But, you know, if you're sending it out to your feeder markets, that's easy to do through that venue. I also do things, you know, when I'm doing it on LinkedIn or I'm sharing something, it doesn't have to necessarily just be an ad, but even a post, if I'm using the right hashtags and I'm talking about relocating and putting it out there. So there's, there's kind of multiple ways to do that. Um, But it is a great tool when you've got a specific property and you know that maybe the buyer is not directly from here. Yeah, absolutely. And as you mentioned, it's not one solution or a silver bullet. It's obviously syndicating it out to all you know the MLS and all of the subsequent services that provide that to the public. But then past that, you know, LinkedIn with tags talking about relocating. If you're in a relocation market or somewhere where there's a huge feeder market coming in, like uh, California to Texas or Boise, or you know, people leaving a certain market and coming to yours, and that's been a lot of a lot of the out of state buyers. You know, you can tag on LinkedIn for more of like an organic search. You can target on social and do ads to those areas. And to your point with housing, there's definitely more restrictions on the social side. However, you can still do cities plus 15 miles with, you know, zero behavior targeting or any of that and still get a lot of qualified traffic because the Facebook and Instagram algorithm still serves that to the right people. Uh, and it can get a lot of good traffic. It, so you could do the entire state of California, you know, feeding to Seattle or, you know, the entire state of Texas feeding to Seattle. And you could also just do Austin plus 15 miles. So there, there's definitely some flexibility there. And I was curious if you were leveraging it, which it seems like you are. You know, it's interesting. We, at the beginning of this conversation, we're talking about, you know, um, those Thomas guides and being in the back of my dad's car. And, you know, when I got into real estate, thankfully, shortly thereafter, you know, the internet happened because I was doing old school emails way before we were able to search online and things. But um, back 20 years ago, right? Your job was to take information, search, and then share it with your clients. 
But we all know my clients are finding the listing before I do. I can set alerts and they're looking and, you know, they're sending me from various resources. So it's I'm not controlling that information anymore. Right. So my role has changed. It changed from just real estate sales to, you know, really global real estate sales and marketing. And so you've got to focus on sales and marketing. And I think that's probably been one of the more difficult things is because it takes a lot of time and attention and, you know, education to really get good at marketing, you know, to really understand, you know, the, the listing side of marketing, especially luxury properties. How, how do we get them the most exposure? What is that strategy? Create a story, yada, yada. And then our own brand development. And then, you know, put it all together and still go out and network. So, you know, all these things have, have changed and evolved, but they go hand in hand. This is the job now. I don't, I don't think real estate is nearly as easy or for the faint of heart that it has been, you know, over the years, this is definitely, you know, more of a job that requires more help, probably a team at some point once you know, you get to a certain production level because it goes back to, you cannot be all things to all people at all time. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, talking about providing a higher quality of service, I'm interested if there's anything that you do for your clients that nobody else does in the industry that you know of. Eek, you know, I try not to focus on other people too much. And I try to you know, I have a few people that um, I think are rock star peers of mine. Um, so we try to collaborate, but um, but I think we have some commonalities in that, you know, when we talk about luxury real estate specifically, that, you know, it's not this idea of it just being a price point. We want everybody that we serve at the end of the day to feel that they were important, that they were well cared for, and that we're leaving them feeling like, they had the best experience that they could have had given, you know, the multifaceted things that could happen in any one transaction and just understanding. I want them to know and feel the end of our journey on that transaction that I understood that they were probably going through something in their life that was very intense or emotional. You know, people, move properties either because, you know, sometimes divorce or a senior is downsizing or, you know, someone's getting married and having a baby and upsizing or careers grow. There's always some emotional element to what they're going through and trying to make this the most positive frictionless transaction and experience for them that it can be so that they feel that they were very valued and taken care of at the end. So that's probably not like, oh, I provide staging as a part of my listing, you know, service or something that some agent might try to um, differentiate. But that's, for me, the most important thing that I try to make sure that I focus on in every transaction. Sure. And it seems like not treating it just as a transaction, but really understanding that client's needs and the emotional story behind why they're making this move. Mm-hmm. It's a yeah. bet. I think it's on my website, you know, that I really want to rehumanize the experience for clients. Mm-hmm. Technology is awesome. Like I can, 
help a client from anywhere in the world. And I have, you know, I've been in Switzerland and written transactions or had a client, you know, out of state who's never seen the property and we facilitated everything, you know, online. I have all these great systems and tools and it just makes everything faster and more efficient. But at the end of the day, we need to really remember that we're here to care for these people and to take care of them during a really emotional transaction or time. And sometimes that's just happy. They're just excited. They're finally buying their beach home or, you know, island property, but it still has a lot of complexities to it. Yes, absolutely. And like you said, you know, reestablishing the human connection there is, is important. So I'm curious if there is a question that I should have asked you or anything that you'd like to elaborate on from earlier. A question that you should have asked me. I don't know that there's a specific one. I can give you kind of more of my personal feelings on real estate and the market. Um, you know, if, if there's something specifically you want to ask, but no, go think, for it. Yeah. If there was a billboard that could speak to all real estate professionals and you could put something on it, what would it be? Less brokers, better brokers. Um, <laughs> you know, there you go. Um, it's a conversation, you know, right now the market is so intense. This is the most intense and extreme seller's market I've ever been in. And again, mm-hmm. licensed for 23 years. But this inventory crisis that we're facing means that the competition is just intense. And we as real estate brokers need to be on our best behavior, expect the most of each other, overdo our parts to make sure that we're doing our best so that everybody can navigate this market with the best outcome and the least emotion involved. That means, you know, forgive quickly. You know, if you're taking on a new listing, make sure that you've got everything done in the best interest of your seller. I went on a listing appointment recently and afterwards the seller called to tell me, and again, you you don't always win everyone, but he called to share with me that they decided not to sell their home. And instead we're going to stay put because they really just couldn't see themselves leaving and finding something else that they would love. And so because of that, they decided to stay put. But in the event they would have sold their house, they had already made the decision they wouldn't list it with me. (laughs) And I said, oh gosh, okay, thank you. You know, can you share why? And he said, well, you know, you came in, you had this great presentation and you had all these suggestions for our home. We really felt connected to you. We really liked you. But the second agent that came in immediately said to us, you know, I will immediately tell you right now, I would reduce my fee to 1%. You don't need to do a thing in this market. We just need to get it on the market. And that's all. It would just be gross of me to take 3%, you know, or whatever, you know, you can't, you know, whatever your fee is, you know, um, in this market where your house is just going to sell. And all I thought was, yikes, this is the most extreme seller's market. That means you have the best chance of your life at selling this asset and maximizing, capitalizing your investment, your profitability. That doesn't mean that you don't have to do anything to get your house ready. You should still pre-inspect it. Why would you ever take an inspection contingency in this market? Like, like you want to do these things. You want all the systems, you know, maintained. You want to show that 
this is the best home. These buyers are being squeezed to pay top dollar and they will, but give them full transparency and make sure that this house is in such great care that they're just willing to do this. And and it was just such a different idea. And I thought, you know, it's interesting because we all kind of have a different philosophy of how we run our business, but it doesn't always mean that it's in the best interest of somebody else. So that's my two cents off the cuff here is just to say, let's raise the bar, make sure that, you know, every buyer that comes through is vetted, that they're an approved buyer, that we are really making sure that the protocols when we're showing houses and we have 50 to 70 people through in 48 hours that we're really caring for someone's home and that we're doing what's in the best interest long-term, even though we're in this very intense time in the market. Yep. Great points. I mean, I've seen houses that went for a uh, cash offer as as opposed to the super qualified 20% down buyer. And guess what? escrow falls through back on the market, right? They chased after that easy solution. And, you know, they, maybe they went again for another one. I saw the same listing come up again. And once again, you know, multiple 20% down offers, one cash offer. And this isn't to say that all cash offers are bad. Of course, as we know, all cash, no contingency, amazing. But as well, like those things can fall through and, and to the point of going for the 1% listing approach, it's enticing because the seller starts to do the math and they say, oh, we're going to save $40,000 or whatever, $60,000. But when you really look at it, it's such a mistake because, oh my gosh, if you just list it right, you're going to get 250K over asking and that doesn't matter, right? You, yeah. you lost money by by trying to save that 1% or 2%. So I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I'm a believer in it, even though I have my real estate license, I, and I've been doing real estate marketing for five years, I listed with the best broker I knew in my city for, because I had a house in San Diego that I grew up in and had an investment property. I then moved to Orange County. So I was renting it out. I sold it last year. And instead of doing it myself, which I could have, I could have processed it through my license. I didn't. I paid commission to a, an amazing associate and top broker down in San Diego. And guess what? He got way above and beyond what I had ever imagined that thing could be sold for. We listed it for 700. He sold it for 850 with wow. a 21 day close, right? Congratulations. And thank you. So little story like that. It's like, yeah, I paid him the commission, but my goodness, like, look what, look what he did. He marketed it right right? We uh, checked all the boxes along the way. He priced it perfectly. He just all the little things that add up to getting the high traffic that it needs in order to get that bidding war and be able to have multiple offers that you could choose from that do that will go through. So uh, yeah, couldn't agree with you more. Great, great ending piece and great two cents there. To wrap that up too, I'd say, you know, this isn't about what someone's fee is. And I think you know, I've had situations where I've charged uh, higher than average, you know, what kind of the norm or whatever might have been in a si- situation um, because the transaction was going to be so difficult. And if I can, you know, actually achieve uh, the client's goals, you know, that's that's what we agreed upon. So so that's not it. But the point of that was truly, you know, the the understanding that, you know, cheap is cheap sometimes because it's cheap. You know, it doesn't 
have to necessarily be about the fee. It's that the agent that you choose should have a strategy and be able to say to you, I'm going to put your more money in your pocket, or I'm going to achieve your goals better than anybody else in the end. And that was really, really kind of the point stepping off of just the fee in the situation. But I watched sometimes when it happens where I haven't won and somebody else has gotten the listing. And I think any broker who's been in the business can tell you sometimes it doesn't work and it doesn't sell and you get a second opportunity, but just know your value. And sometimes you're going to win. Sometimes you're going to lose. I have a potential, I don't know if it's like a one-liner or what it is, but something that I learned from my sales experience that might help in those situations for anyone out there as well who's competing against a discount broker. So in my experience selling Cutco Cutlery, which is super high quality kitchen knives, right? A lot of times the argument was like, well, you know, I have these cheaper knives over here. Like, why don't I just keep these? Like everyone already has knives, right? <laughs> and And so one of the lines that we would use, which worked super well, was, you know, Mrs. Jones, the only time that you really enjoy buying a cheap product is when you buy it because you feel great. I save so much money. And then every single time you use it, you're disappointed with it. Isn't that true? The only time that you're maybe a little bit apprehensive or feel the sting from buying an expensive product is when you buy it right? Because you're like, ouch, right? I could have got one for less. But then every single time you use it, you're so glad you did. Isn't that true, right? And you'd be surprised how many times people are like, you know what, you're right. And I use this stuff every day. And I think that can also be mimicked in a listing appointment negotiation when you're talking about, absolutely, I understand that it's enticing to go after what's called a discount broker and go after that 1%, right? However, you don't know what you're missing out on by getting a full service brokerage, right? And this is the largest asset of your life. And you can then continue on down that, that road. But that concept of buying something cheap because it's cheap and then paying for it every single day after, as opposed to buying something that's expensive, but profiting from it every day after, I think is a really important concept to help provide that little mental switch for, for a consumer that might just push them over the edge. You might, you might just teeter them back over and have them win that listing. So I don't know if that helps anyone out there. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Jen? I think at the end of the day, everything that we do in our business really isn't about us, right? We have our why, why we work, why we choose to do what we do. We love, we're passionate about our jobs, but it's really important to always remember it is, it's your client's asset. <laughs> you know, it's, it's their money. It's their property doing what's in their best interest always, right? Even if it requires more hard work, more effort, more work up front. That's our job. Our job is to maximize their profitability at the end of the day. It's really not about my fee. If they're happy at the end with more money in their pocket, they're not going to have a problem paying my fee. So we just need to be able to articulate that well to our clients and make sure that we can show them, right? What is the strategy to do that? That was just an interesting kind of situation that happened to me recently. Um, the cool thing about that was we actually had a second follow-up conversation to it. And we talked about that. And he shared feedback about other people he had met with during that process too. Um, so you never know. He's staying put right now. Yes, I hope he calls me. You know, It was a good opportunity from 
for me to just not take his answer, but to kind of dig a little deeper. Yep, absolutely. And it really is just all about them. I mean, we have a fiduciary responsibility to that end consumer to help them manage this asset. And we do this every day. They don't. So great point there. And I'm curious uh, how listeners can contact you if they do want to get in touch for any reason, maybe send a referral or uh, ask to join the team. How can they contact you? Thank you for asking because it's been about 48 hours. I just, I have a new website that because I'm growing a team, it's just jencameronteam.com. Awesome. Very easy. Well, I will link to that below and I really appreciate having you on. Jen Cameron, luxury specialist in Seattle area and helping clients from all over. As she mentioned, she's a a global real estate broker. (laughs) So I really, really appreciate having you on. Thank you, Jen. I love that you have this forum to be able to have these kind of conversations about our industry. And this was fun. And thank you for having me. My pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you want to accomplish your real estate goals, then I highly suggest downloading my free ultimate real estate goal setting framework. The link is in the description of the show and it will help you break down your annual income goal into the amount of phone calls, appointments, or open houses you need in order to achieve that goal. Thank you so much and we'll see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.